Murder in the Rain would like to give a big howdy to our newest Patreon, Maria S. from Irving, Texas. Thank you so much for joining, and we hope you enjoy all of your extras. If you're feeling jealous of Maria, as you should be, you should check us out at patreon.com slash murder in the rain for all the extras and goodies. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. When I was younger, I always thought being in the mob would be the coolest. Not as the kept wife with the hair and nails and fur, but as one of the guys out handling business. It probably goes back to my love of true crime and thinking that mobster justice was, well, anything resembling actual justice. A film that was very influential to my desire to be a Don was Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese's 1990 monster classic. In Goodfellas, one of the most iconic scenes is in the opening when they have to take care of a not-quite-dead Frank Vincent and have him in the trunk of their car, taking him to be disposed of. While that seemed cool and dangerous as a youngster, now as a true crime podcaster, I've learned it is a horrific reality that occurs more than you would think. Just Google body found in trunk and you will find page after page of heartbreaking and shocking stories, some of which I'll be telling you today. I had interest in covering these cases back when Murder in the Rain first started. Before we had even released an episode in February of 2019, I had heard about a woman that had been found in her own trunk. My curiosity about this case only grew as her story was mentioned on the news once and simply called suspicious. It seemed a bit more than suspicious that a woman was found dead in her own trunk. The suspicious death was that of 43-year-old black woman Jaquana Goggins. Found on February 7th, it took six days to identify her body. The mother of two and grandmother of three was placed in the trunk of her own car, and it was left parked at 135th and Division. And that was it. The police found a dead woman in the trunk and left it as suspicious. Well, it was suspicious, as she had been murdered. There wouldn't be any traction on the case for another 10 months when, in eastern Oregon, a man by the name of Charvel Douglas was pulled over on the side of the road due to engine troubles with his red Pontiac vibe. A passing officer stopped to assist the driver, and upon arriving at the door, he noticed that he was acting unusual, shuffling around the car, acting like he was looking for something. As the officer talked with him and the two female passengers with him, the women got out of the vehicle. Charvel refused. And then, a high-speed chase, at times reaching 100 miles an hour. He tried to get away, his tiny car even surviving spike strips and a pit maneuver, before finally coming to a stop when he crashed into a patrol vehicle. He was treated for his injuries and then booked, as he had a warrant out for his arrest for the death of Jaquana. The details of how Jaquana and Charvel crossed paths or why he would want to murder her have yet to be made public, as he is still in custody awaiting trial. But as soon as we have any updates, we will let you know. Another gut-wrenching case came out of Aloha, Oregon in 2018. Sarah Zagul was a stunning Jordanian-American that lived in Aloha among her large, close family. At only 28 years old, she had lived a lot of life. She was a mother to 8-year-old Tariq. She was a model, an actress, and at one point, she had been a drug dealer. And in January of 2018, she was ready to get help for her meth and heroin addictions. It was that decision, the one to get better, that would ironically lead to her demise. 
Sarah's mother, Chris Ann, dropped her off to seek inpatient treatment at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center. Unfortunately, they didn't have room for her that night, so Sarah called her mom, who then picked her up and took her to a hotel in Beaverton in hopes of being able to enroll in treatment the following day. Sadly, her being alone in that hotel room allowed for her demons to take over. Alone and struggling with her addiction, she reached out to a drug dealer she knew. New sounds a bit too casual for their relationship. Not only had 37-year-old Jeremiah Johnston been Sarah's dealer, she had sold for him previously. Once contacted, Jeremiah picked Sarah up from the hotel and took her back to Aloha to his parents' home, a home that was only half a mile from where she lived with her parents. Settled into the house, Jeremiah then confronted Sarah about the money she owed him from her dealing days. There's no way of knowing if she flat-out refused, said she didn't have it, or laughed it off— but she made it clear to Jeremiah he would not be getting his cash. This sent Jeremiah into a rage. Unsure of what to do with her, he started by duct-taping her to a chair, but he then let her go. Seeing that as an opportunity to escape, Sarah made a run for it, but before she could get out of the house, Jeremiah caught up with her and threw her down a flight of stairs. In doing so, she hit her head on the wall so hard she began to throw up. Dazed, she asked if she could take a shower to clean the vomit off of her, which he allowed. It was then, as she cleaned herself off, that Jeremiah decided what he would have to do with the woman that owed him a little bit of money. He was going to kill her. While she bathed, he went downstairs and got a kitchen knife. Leading Sarah to the basement once she was out of the bathroom, he tied her hands, laid her down, climbed on top of her, and slit her throat with the knife. Waiting the several minutes it takes for someone to bleed to death, he then decided what he would have to do next. Go to bed. The next day, he made the decision to dismember Sarah. He put most of her body into black garbage bags, all but her head. For that, he grabbed the large teddy bear he had already purchased. Removing the stuffing from the bear's head, he took Sarah's head, which he had wrapped and taped into a black bag, and placed it into the bear's. Josh had a good question when I was telling him this of, was there a way of knowing if he was on drugs because that's so extreme? And while well, it didn't and say... he thought it might have been logical at the time. Maybe. It doesn't say whether or not he was high, but he was dealing very hardcore drugs. Do you so know what he does next with it? I sure do. <gasps> Eventually, Sarah's mom tried to get a hold of her via text. Jeremiah responded, posing as Sarah. He texted the mother of the woman he had just cut into pieces, something along the lines of, I decided not to go to rehab and instead I'm taking a trip. Don't worry about me. After cleaning his mess, he took Sarah's remains and the bear to his BMW and left them in the trunk before moving the car away from his parents' house. For five days, Sarah's whereabouts were unknown as she laid in his trunk. After almost a week, Jeremiah finally reached out to a friend, not to confess, but to ask for help in disposing of the body. 36-year-old Jeremy Mooney received the call from his friend that not only had he killed someone, but he needed his assistance. Well, that's a much nicer way of putting it than how Jeremiah did. He told his friend, I killed a drug addict. No one will miss her. Like I had mentioned in the Kurt Cobain episode, detectives say that if you ever need to get away with murder, to kill a junkie. Which speaks a lot more for a treatment of people needing drug and therapeutic counseling than it does for those that use. Luckily, Jeremy wasn't as horrible a person as his friend. He not only refused to help hide the body, he called the police. They were able to search the area and find the car, 
except that they had no evidence or warrants, so there was nothing they could do except wait. Jeremiah then took the car and went to a nearby grocery store. The police had followed, and once the car was left in the parking lot, they brought in cadaver dogs who hit on the trunk. Because of the dogs, they were able to get a search warrant. They opened the trunk and found Sarah's remains. Well, most of her remains. The head, which had been put in the bear, was no longer with the rest of her body. While detectives processed the car and body, other officers searched the nearby woods for Jeremiah. They were able to eventually locate him, except now he had cuts to his throat and wrists from where he had attempted to take his life with the knife he had just purchased at the store. Jeremiah was arrested and put in jail. Having not learned his lesson from his friend tattling on him, he immediately solicited a fellow inmate to kill Jeremy, the friend that had called the police. Well, luckily that inmate was on the same moral high ground as Jeremy and also tattled. You know I love a good tattle. This not only protected Jeremy the snitch, but allowed the prosecution to build an even stronger case. Because you probably wouldn't hire someone to kill your friend if you weren't guilty. Finally, after a plea deal was made, Jeremiah had his day in court on the 5th of December in 2019. There, in a courtroom filled with Sarah's friends and family, Jeremiah Johnston pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, second-degree kidnapping, first-degree abuse of a corpse, and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder of a witness. Being that it was a plea deal, there were caveats to his life sentence, one being that he can become eligible for parole in 2084. So while it is likely he will die behind bars before those 65 years are up, there were two questions the family wanted answered that, unfortunately, were not part of the deal. Most importantly, her head. While Jeremiah admitted in court to everything he had done in murdering and dismembering Sarah, he failed to disclose where he ended up putting her head after placing it in the teddy bear but removing it from the vehicle. The other question they want answered, the new security code to her phone. When Sarah was at his house, he had found her phone and used it to text her mom. After doing so, he changed the access code. Her family was desperately hoping he would spare them the continued pain of not allowing her body to rest in peace and keep them from accessing all of her photos and videos, the memories she carried that they now hoped to carry for her. As the prosecution begged for him to provide closure to Sarah's family, Jeremiah sat emotionless and silent, hearing the echoes of the courtroom which held no supporters of his. Sarah's sister reminded Jeremiah of their family's Muslim beliefs as she read from the Quran at his sentencing. Whoever kills a believer intentionally, his punishment is hell. While all we can do now is hope that he still hasn't learned his lesson and will gab to someone about what he did with the rest of Sarah, her family must keep on. Her parents are now raising her son. Sarah was known by friends to be a loving, fun, caring friend, sister, daughter, and mother, the kind of person that would give you anything you needed. And as her family member told Oregon Live after the sentencing, Sarah will continue to live on within our heavy hearts and minds. She will walk beside us in every step we take. Her light will not be dimmed by the dark shadows of these events. Her smiles and laughter will not be forgotten in the silence of the nights ahead. Poignantly, as Jeremiah was taken from the courtroom, a lone voice shouted out, Coward. And that brings us to the eerily similar stories of Marilee Cooley and Marcine Henrik. It was Christmas time in 2016 when 68-year-old Marilee Cooley went missing. 
Last seen on the 26th of December, Marilee's son and his family had come over to visit, talk about Christmas, and spend some time together. Two days later, some friends of Marilee's went by her house. They knew from the start something was wrong. The front door was open, her car was gone. As they entered, they found her purse dumped on the floor. Having mobility issues, they knew their friend was in trouble when they saw her walker in the hallway knocked to the ground. They called the police, and a missing persons report was filed. The police asked for help and put out an APB for her black Kia Optima, but heard nothing. For days, family and friends assisted in the search, driving around town, looking for her car. Then, at 10 p.m. on January 5th, patrol officers informed the sheriff's office that they had found her car, parked, unlocked, and with the key in the ignition. It was located at the Miramonte Lodge apartment complex off McLaughlin Boulevard in Milwaukee. Once the car was found, so was her body. Placed in her own trunk, it was determined by the medical examiner that her death was a homicide. In the trunk with Marilee was a bottle of water, a plastic bag containing cookies, and used duct tape. From her wrist hung a single handcuff. In regards to Marilee's case, I reached out to the detective, but because it's an open case, he's unable to talk with us. However, her family was gracious enough to send us an email with some extra details in hopes of finding some information and closing her case. Marilee was a people person, always talking on the phone or making plans with friends, planning camping trips, and having people come and go from her house. She didn't know a stranger. She loved everyone and thought of them all as family. She was Mimi to everyone, not just her grandkids. She based her life around children. She owned and ran several daycare centers and worked as a nanny for multiple families over her lifetime. Basically, anything to do with children was what she loved to do. We called her Crazy Mimi because she never told any child no. Nothing was too messy, too loud, or glittery. She just let them be creative and have fun. She was the one that bought those gifts that parents didn't necessarily want their kids to have because <laughs> of the ones. mess. Yeah. <laughs> the noises and the yeah. drum kits. <laughs> Me at Christmas apologizing to my brother and sister-in-law. <laughs> as far as the timeline for that week, here is what we can confirm. We last saw her on Monday, December 26th. We stopped by to share Christmas gifts with her at her home in Johnson City. We stayed for a few hours, then drove home to Lebanon. We had a very nice visit, filled with the kids playing Wii games and convincing their dad to participate in eating the Harry Potter jelly beans. Lots of laughs all around. She was in great spirits when we left, in spite of her illness. She could not walk without her walker, but she was up and about that day with her walker, not showing any signs of pain or illness. Nobody saw or spoke to her on Tuesday the 27th or Wednesday the 28th. We cannot confirm if she talked to anyone Monday night. We don't know if anyone stopped by or spoke with her Tuesday or Wednesday. Brian received a phone call around 10 p.m. on Wednesday, December 28th from Marilee's friend, Peggy Hoosman. Peggy stated that she hadn't heard from Marilee and that her house was unlocked and her items rummaged through, as well as her car being missing. Peggy had called the police and filed a report. An officer came out and documented the house. Brian, Marilee's son, went to Portland early the next morning, the 29th. Family and friends searched special places that week. We didn't have any idea what had happened. Thought that maybe she was emotional and left, so we searched areas that we thought she might have gone to. Everything just didn't add up, though. She wouldn't have left. She never would have had that state of mind, ever. We were suspicious from the start. Marilee's car was found at the Miramonte apartment complex on Thursday, January 5th, around 9.45 p.m. She was found deceased in the trunk, keys in the ignition, doors unlocked. 
89-year-old Marcine Henrik was a beloved mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. We all hope that when we've lived a life full of family and love and reach a certain age, we've earned a peaceful passing, that as we reach our 90s, we will simply go in our sleep. Sadly, that was far from the case for Marcine. Attending the same church for 20 years, Marcine was known and adored by her community members. She loved to laugh, make pies, and be a mother to all. She was one of those people these stories are far too often about. A person always involved in charities, caring for her family, and carrying herself with a brightness of love and smiles. Not driving due to early-stage dementia, Marcine was known for getting rides from family and friends to and from her multiple volunteer shifts at different nonprofits. It was September 18, 2018, when Marcine was doing her usual volunteer shift at a local thrift store she had worked at for four years. It was there she encountered 58-year-old Timothy Joseph Mackley. Walking past her, he dropped his cell phone. She saw him near the floor and accused him, rightfully or not remains unclear, of looking up her skirt. Jeff was asked to leave the store, which he did, but then he returned to apologize and to creepily tell Marcine that he would miss her. After her shift, her daughter-in-law picked her up and took her home. Unfortunately, and unbeknownst to both of them, they were not alone. Timothy was following Marcine from the thrift store to her home, which was less than two miles from his own. The next morning, Marcine's son Jeff came by the house. Immediately, red flags were raised when he saw both the garage and front doors were open. The front screen was locked, her cell phone, purse, and keys were still on the kitchen counter, and most unsettling, there was a cup of coffee still in the microwave, cold from the unknown hours it had sat unattended. Police were called, and soon, just like in Marilee's case, friends and family were covering the neighborhood with flyers, knocking on doors, desperately searching for any answers as to what had happened to the woman that was everyone's mother. Tipped off by the strange encounter that had occurred between Marcine and Timothy at the thrift store the day prior, the police used the security footage to get a look at the man that then became a person of interest. A week after Marcine had gone missing, police were able to track down Timothy in his Toyota Camry off Holgate Boulevard in Portland. Pulling him over and searching the car, it was then that the body of Marcine was found in his trunk. Her manner of death was ruled a homicide, but her death was much worse than that. Once in court, it was revealed that Timothy had entered Marcine's home either the night of the 18th or in the early morning hours of the 19th and kidnapped her. He then traveled with her, taking her from one location to another. While doing so, he tortured, terrorized, injured, and sexually assaulted her for a period of six days. It was the torture and physical injuries that took her life, almost like it was an accidental side effect of his actions, not the initial intent. Timothy was arrested and charged with murder, but this was far from his first run-in with police. Back in 1989, Timothy Mackley was convicted of sodomy and sex abuse. I'm assuming with someone underage as part of his conviction was that he was not permitted to be around children or schools. Another charge through the years was for kidnapping. As a sex offender, he was supposed to register, but he didn't. That failure to register, failure by the system to keep him in check, and diagnosed mental health illnesses that were, by the sounds of it, not being treated, are the combination the family of Marcine felt led to her death. Once in court, his mental health issues were apparent as he would roll his eyes, jump around, talk to himself, and turn away from the court multiple times. 
Held without bail, Timothy pleaded not guilty. Then came the plea deal. Timothy agreed to plead guilty to aggravated murder, murder, first-degree burglary, and second-degree abuse of a corpse. These charges led to a life-in-prison sentence with eligibility for parole after 35 years, which isn't something anyone needs to worry about as he should be dead long before then. Jeff, Marcin's son, gave a victim's impact statement at his sentencing, saying, You know, I don't know what to call you. I've called you Tim, Timothy, Mackley, and then it came to me. You don't have a name. You're just an animal to the family. It's obvious that her life meant nothing to you, but to her family and friends, she meant the world. Mom always had a beautiful smile and a heart of gold. If you ever needed a helping hand or someone to listen, she was always there. Mom will be missed by family, friends, and her beloved church family. It is safe to say that you had no compassion. You will have plenty of time to think about your actions. You aren't wrong to hear the story of Marcine and notice the commonalities her case shares with Mary Lee's. Both were older women, taken from their homes, put into a car trunk. While Marcine's case did reignite interest in Mary Lee's, there has still yet to be an arrest made in connection to Mary Lee's murder. In regards to the two women's cases being connected, Marilee's family wrote us saying, We, the family, never felt that Marilee's case and that of Marcine Hendricks were related. That day we received many texts to see if we had seen it. Brian called our detective and asked him to look into it. There was talk at a press conference from Marcine's family, but there was never a connection found. To this day, we do not feel that they are related. We do not feel her case is related to any other case. If you think you may have any information about Mary Lee's death, please call the Oregon Crime Stoppers at 503-823-HELP. That's 503-823-4357, or you can visit them at crimestoppersoforegon.com. You can also give tips anonymously, so if you have anything, no matter how small, please call. Thank you again to Brian and Wendy for taking their time to share with us some information about their family member and hopefully some information that will help close the case. I find it interesting, you know, after I digested you doing that case and looked up some photos for our blog, mm-hmm. it is insane how many articles pair them together yes. like it happened. And I think that is a that's problematic mm-hmm. that they're not separating the cases because one is closed mm-hmm. and the other one isn't. And I think people can just look and go, oh, yeah, they're uh, older they ladies. They're yeah. in the trunk. They're Guy did it to both house. of them. Yeah. They, ca- they caught him. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a problem. Big yeah. time. I, I had a hard time finding individual photos because everything was combined. Luckily, these other stories are solved and closed. But. Just like so many others, Marilee's isn't. So we're hoping that with any information, even if that means, you know, you, the listener, taking a moment to Google her name and look at her image, look at her car. Maybe you lived in that apartment complex or near that area at that time. And maybe you saw something and you didn't realize it was connected. So that's the biggest hope from all of this is that it brings more attention to it, separates it from a closed case And maybe, maybe, maybe one person out of everyone that listens just hasn't called in that one thing, just like your case with the the older couple. And it took 30 years for the guy to come forward. Finally said something. Let's not take 30 years. Call it in if you're not even sure. If you you think it's a little detail, that's okay because it's better to have it than to not. So 
Let's solve this case. Here, here. Anyway, so those are my stories. I know it's a, it was a shorter one, but I know there's a lot of anger. <laughs> Let's start with you really hit the nail on the head with the you assume when someone has lived a long life and given everything to the people they raised and they do good in the community that they deserve a peaceful passing. Right. And it is so terrible when you hear that these things happen. And there is something, you know, it's like same as with children. There Mm -hmm. is something to when it is someone that is so anytime you hear elderly person, whether they're hurt or defenseless. This is someone who is at risk because they are they're not necessarily very strong and they're maybe easy to trick and yeah. especially if they're in the early stages of dementia oh yeah there's definitely an added level of grotesque behavior i mean and that's just what you the would lowest call of the aggravating low. factor mm-hmm. you know I, I mean people do get more time for that mm-hmm. but you went out of your way to pick a nearly 90 year old woman with health issues it's so sad and then you think of all of the good she was doing and not to say, like, people who make poor choices deserve to right, get killed. Right, but, but someone who's actively working to make the world a better place, think of all the opportunities going to be missed with her being gone, too. Yeah, all the good she's being. And I think, you know, not that that's a driving force for people to do good, but there is the idea of karma of I'll be OK. Not that nothing bad would ever happen to you, but, you know, I, I put all this good into the world so it comes back tenfold you know all those kind of thoughts and to have it come back not come back but to have this be what happens to her you know it's it's so sad and then and just the idea that he drove her around for six days he clearly has severe mental issues. he does and i you know i i kind of i went back and forth and i'm happy to have this conversation i kind of went back and forth of saying what they were because they did say what his mental health issues were but I think there's such stigma between... There is stigma, but it does provide a little bit of context of when somebody isn't undergoing treatment, how things can get out of control. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it is, it's hard. I don't know. Because, you know, it, so it was bipolar and schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. But that I, I was torn on talking about that because, yes, it's important to say you have mental health issues and the family was fighting even after her death and everything because, yeah, he shouldn't have been on the street. He was dangerous. Mm-hmm. He already had been dangerous, um, but I do just hate that it's, oh, it's those two. And so then but if you like hear a, lot a friend of, that... It's a lot of things. Serial killers have that commonality yeah. of mo- mom issues. That doesn't mean everyone with a mom issue is going to go kill yeah. someone. It's the same thing. A lot of people live with schizophrenia and they never do anything harmful mm-hmm. to another person. The difference is they're usually monitored and medicated. Exactly. So I don't, yeah, I don't want to contribute to the stigma at all, but I think it does help us kind of rationalize. Mm-hmm. A, a, and obviously a, these are extreme cases. Sure. And if you're in a case where you are following someone to their house and kidnapping them for a week in your car, that's an extreme case of either of those, and whatever the combination help is. Help me understand, what yeah. was his age at the time? He of- was uh, 58. Okay. What gets me too is that so many of them were so many days and they're just driving around. They're just driving around with people in their trunk. Yeah, I mean, that's the way to not get caught, I guess, because it's with you all the time. You're not right? like leaving their body in a park. Okay, let's go back to your first case. Yes. I am really horrified by them not finding her head. 
Oh, that was uh, that's the second case. So second it case, was Jaquan. Uh, so, yeah. So first was Jaquana's case, which I had been in touch with a family member. And it just before I could even get to the case to read, you know, there there just wasn't info about it anywhere. Right. Um, and before I could even get to it. So luckily it didn't go on and on for years. It, it was within the same year um, that they were able to catch that guy. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah. Sarah uh, Zagul in Iloa. Yeah, that's really hard. Yeah. And it just could be anywhere. You should look. Um, you know, her Instagram is still up. She was gorgeous and, you know, posted pictures with her son and her family and all these things. And smallest world, it, it kind of gave me goosebumps. She has a picture like, I don't know, a couple rows down of her with Mike from Murder, Inc., Wow, yeah. that is a small world. Yeah, so Mike from Murder Inc. was uh, uh, what's an early contributor an early, to our show, yeah, supporting us. Yeah, he donated for our premiere uh, party and all of that. And so I was scrolling through, and I was like, "Oh, I know that face." Wait, it was so out of context of what I wasn't expecting to see a face I knew on her feed. Um, but yeah, she was just living life, and you can't fault people with these addictions because it's so rampant. It's so accessible and it think it could happen to anyone yeah. you know someone who had is recovering from surgery and gets an addiction to painkillers starts self-medicating right. and then it gets out of control right. and maybe they can't afford it anymore so they're buying buying stuff off the street mm -hmm. so it really can happen to anyone so it's frustrating if um you know people don't support getting help right. for them because they're a lost cause. Her and you go oh she was a drug addict and then she called this drug dealer she had it coming or something like that and it's like no one has this coming and well that's actually this guy has that coming yeah, <laughs> jeremiah true. johnston he has that coming but no one else deserves that it's it's so horrific and the fact that and again they are in a very vulnerable position yes. because they are addicted and in, and they need it. Mm -hmm. Their body needs it. And if they're both standing there, if they both happen to have used and then he brings up money and you can't control your emotional state, you know, what is she going to do? It's one thing to say we got in an argument and I was high and took it too far and pushed it down the stairs and I panicked. Not that that's excusable, but to then all this time later. I'm not going to tell you where your daughter's head is, and I'm not going to let you even have her phone. It's just such another level. So they have the phone. They can't get into it. Right. The, it feels like that is something the police could get a warrant for the phone company to do. Can they do that? Because I remember a well, couple my, years ago that there was a big thing of what does that really look like my for the work security. Can. So I would imagine there's something. So my work owns my phone, oh, right? Oh, right. I forgot my password and we all use my phone to get uh to be able to get access our mobile apps and stuff and i had to get it cleared so i contacted our help desk and do so they there's an ability out there but it's i wonder the owner if of it's, the phone. i wonder if it's so specific with police that if they don't need it maybe they can't get permission. it might have to be a very specific because i know that people like i can't just call and say oh i need to get well, access to this you look back to the i5 killer case right mm -hmm. they had to be very specific on the warrant of what they were getting from his house right they weren't allowed to use anything else that wasn't on it right so it yeah. could be very similar yeah it's very fun and i doubt it would be a, a separate news article that they got access to their phone so it's very possible that that's happened i feel like if he exposed where the rest of her body was that would be on the news, yeah. so there'd be something. But 
Um, of course, in my brain, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to start writing him and I'm going to lure him and I'm going to trick him into tattling on himself. he hasn't told people yet, I I doubt. I mean, maybe when, a, a, someone in jail might have That's what I'm saying. Wouldn't it be shocking if he didn't just because he <laughs> tends to be a blabbermouth, that's apparently? That's a good point. Most people do tell someone. Yeah. I've found it interesting with the two older women that so far, at least, they haven't said that they've made a connection between the two, which is surprising because of the area. I mean, they're all of these are within all of these. These are just four just in Portland. Yeah. Within in a very similar area. Four years, three years, something like that. Milwaukee is not that far from the other area either. Oh, yeah. Like Milwaukee for, you know, non-Portlanders. Milwaukee is... It's like, like a suburb. The south, like, yeah, <laughs> if you go south in Portland on the east side, you just end up in Milwaukee. It's mm-hmm. the neighboring uh, so town. So th- that's one of those things that if a witness happens to come forward who who potentially has a clue that could link it, the case could get busted open. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important to continue sharing the story. Were there details about the the car he drove or or her car, rather, and, like, where it was No, located. just that it was found in an apartment complex and that the keys were in the ignition. So that's, I mean, that's part of it, too. So you weren't stealing it, like... Yeah, that's you ominous. Weren't, you weren't stealing the car. You could have had a car and you didn't steal the car. And then you left food and water. It makes me feel like they weren't intending to kill her, but then I don't know what the medical examiner right. said about how she was murdered. Right, I don't know either if she starved to death or if she was... You know, if there was, well, was injury it hot? to her. What time of year was that? Um, I think it was in September. Let me see. Well, it could be warm. Because if she had water in there that was still full, did it say whether it was full? Or no, not? just that there was. Yeah, that's very questionable. It's it's almost like they had intended to come back and move her or something. Yeah. And then or they had been dead. driving around for that week, which is so much like the other case. Yeah. Which you can't help but wonder. Okay, did we I'm I'm sure that they've the detectives have gone through sure, trying yeah, to yeah. trying to connect Timothy to say like the MO here is so similar. Um but yeah, so I'm I'm grateful that three of these cases were solved and fairly quickly. Um and it's just a shame that Marilee's isn't and hopefully yet. something isn't yet. Maybe like the Morans, soon. somebody will come forward and be able to give that witness sighting or clue that helps them yeah one anything i think about that a lot driving around you know they say what is it through in life you pass seven serial killers or something yeah seven or eight every once in a while think you know serial killers or is it just killers oh i think it used to be serial killers and now that that's gone out of style maybe it's it's just killers. killers um but i think i thought about this before this case but i know i definitely will even more so of just how often do you pass somebody with something in their trunk that they shouldn't have, whether it's a kilo of Coke or a person or what, you know, and the and the balls that takes. I mean, I drive around with my tags expired. I'm like, oh, boy. So in my lifetime, I know at least three killers. But three. And those are the ones I know about. <laughs> so... Seems like that statistic is possible, you know? Yeah, I guess so. Sometimes it's like, you shouldn't have given me a mic. (laughs) (laughs) 
like my childhood dream come true. Poignant. These sensitive. I always think about that with like um, <clears throat> massage therapists. Like I having their you? tummy like right at your head. So if I ever have an upset tummy, I usually cancel my massage. Because one time I had to hold in a fart the entire time. It was not enjoy no. enjoyable, but I knew it was going to be massive. Right. right. <laughs> it was awful. But rubbing your back, like pushing. It was rough. Throw in a robe and go fart. They don't got no robes there. What is it? Four seasons? No, it's Elements Massage. <laughs> <laughs> got to hold in them toots. I didn't want to nail her in the face with that shit. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of impressive to your abdomen and butthole strength. Yeah, honestly, I would consider it a workout. <laughs> Can't go to the gym right now, so I just dear, get my farts in. Dear Google, how many calories do I burn holding in a fart? <laughs> After this episode, stay tuned to hear about farts and calorie burning. Lots of content for Sir Joshy today. Oh, no. He's like, oh, thinking about Burger King, getting my mouth, my mouth's watering. And I was like, and then later our butts will be watering. <laughs> that's true, though. I freaking love bread, but I know I'm going to get sick. I love Starbucks Pike Place coffee, but after my third cup, I got to go. Third cup? That's anyone. I would have explosive diarrhea after one okay, cup. Okay, I might be lying. It's a cup and a half, but still. <laughs> oh, yeah. How many calories do farts burn? <laughs> yeah, we need to know. Because I should be skinny bitch by now. <laughs> <laughs> Experts say farting is a passive activity, so it probably doesn't burn any calories at all. Well, fuck that. I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> when you fart, your muscles relax and the pressure in your gut pushes the gas out without effort. You burn calories when your muscles what? work, When you're not pushing relax. them out, because I do that a lot. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs> <laughs>